We hope you enjoy our homily podcast. Please consider supporting the ministry of Our Lady of Lords by donating to the Future Full of Hope capital campaign at lordsdenver.org. We are so grateful for your support. There's a little prayer that the priest prays after the, the gospel. Do you know this one? Uh, it's silent, so you probably wouldn't. <laughs> uh, it's per Evangelia Dicta, Deliantur Nostra Delicta. It's something about, by the proclamation of the gospel, Lord, remove our sins um, or our faults, our, our delicts. It's kind of like the, the things we owe to you because of our faults. Um, by the proclamation of the gospel. There's something powerful about even just hearing the gospel that purifies our soul. I love that. Um, it's like medicine. Um, okay, that has nothing to do with anything. That was just a thought that came to my mind. I'm ADD. <laughs> You'll learn this. Uh, okay, so uh, Jesus says, well, what about those Galileans who's... Um, this was like kind of like news in the tabloids at the time. Um, these Galileans were standing up for um, the Jewish faith. They were zealous people. Pilate had brought in these, well, this is how the story goes from Josephus. Pilate had brought in these images of Rome, these eagles, kind of flags, and he set them up on the temple. And they were on the outside of the temple. He knew if he put them on the inside of the temple, they'd kill him. Um, but he put them on the outside of the temple. To, um, for him, this was, uh, we want to show you that Rome supports your religion. You know, kind of a nice thing, isn't it? Good gesture from the Roman dele- uh, delegate. Uh, but for them, it was, you're setting up your God and the place of our God. And so these Galileans um, rose up and grabbed all those flags, tore them down, and Pilate had them all killed on the spot. Um, and so people were saying, well, Jesus, is it good for us to, to kind of exercise that zeal? Were they wrong? Were they right? Why didn't God protect them? In fact, our temple is defiled by this very event. Were they, is that proof that they were wrong? And he's asking them to judge this sort of mysterious occasion and to chime in on the politics of it, to chime in on the, the phenomenon of human guilt and punishment. Where is God in these moments? Is he for us? Is he for somebody else? Um, and Jesus simply says, you're not much different. Huh? That's interesting. You know, there's another moment that seems a lot less, or, or a lot less intentional and much more arbitrary. A tower falls on people and they die. And Jesus says, and they say, well, something, they must have done something wrong to get this sort of freak accident that takes them out. Uh, and Jesus says, well, you're no different. Something here is Jesus saying, pay attention to yourself. Don't look around and figure out how God is going to punish other people, how God is going to praise other people. You're wasting your time. He says, if you do not repent, you will all perish. That's kind of a scary thread, you know. Um, we don't often think about that, Jesus. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I want to listen to K-Love and think about the nice Jesus all the time. <laughs> but our Jesus is also a wise Jesus. He says, he's trying to protect us. He says, if you don't change, 
you're going to die in very silly ways because of your sins. Your sin will kill you. And it will kill you in your selfishness. You waste your life. Don't waste your life. Uh, give up on your sin. Turn away from your sin. Because he knows that people are, are, are in our fallen state. We're selfish. We live primarily worried about taking care of ourselves. No? It's just this sin is really just a slavery to selfishness. And then it takes a lot of different forms. You, can, you and I confess a lot. I don't know, I do. And uh, so we know the forms that the selfishness takes in our life. You know, when I need to take care of myself, I do this or that. If I want control on the road, I get mad at other people, and it doesn't serve any purpose except destroy myself. You know, this is the way that sin works. And Jesus wants to set us free, so he's saying, hey, wake up. Wake up. The selfish way is not, is not the best way. Um, you need, but, but pay attention to yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. He says this, yeah, okay. So then he gives them this parable, and the gospel gives us this parable. Um, he tells about a gardener. Who is he talking about? Who's the gardener in the gospels? Well, there's, I guess there's two. That's not fair. <laughs> the Old Testament Isaiah one is God, the owner of the vineyard. Um, or there's three, I guess. God owns the vineyard. He's kind of a gardener. He gives the vineyard over to the Israelites, his chosen people, the people of God, who are expected to tend it, and they're called stewards. And then ultimately, it's Jesus who takes over the care for the vines. Uh, he's the gardener. And that's why in, in the end, he shows up when he rises. You remember he's confused as a gardener, probably because he was gardening, I think. Uh, I don't know why. I, if you know how, this is a side note as well. Uh, if you know how I came to sign up for that community garden across there, I'd like to sign up. I want to grow jalapenos and tomatoes and make some salsa. But I don't know how to sign up for that thing. Um, if any of you would like to teach me how to garden, too, that'd be nice. Uh, Jesus is a gardener, and he's talking about himself, and he's talking about how, remember he often tells people when he's preaching, uh, you could be a good tree or a bad tree, right? Look at your fruits. And here he's talking to bad trees. Um, bad is an often confused word. There's not like, for Jesus, there's not like ultimately bad people. There's, he's good. He's a Jew. He knows that God has made everything good. So bad just means it's not bearing the right fruit, you know? It's meant for something else, and it's not, it's not doing that. But um, he tells a story where he says you could look on this from the skies and say from above, the, the, the owner of the vineyard, and say this is worthless. It's wasting, it's wasting soil. Um, let me get rid of it. And Jesus says, no, the way that I do it is that I say give me a chance. Give me time. And I'll cultivate this ground and fertilize it. Jesus is an intercessor. He says, I don't want anything to be destroyed. I don't want the, anything to be gone to waste, even when it really is not the way it's supposed to be. Huh? Uh, that's beautiful. Somehow God has, has saved us, and 
is working on our souls, cultivating our souls, uh, cultivating the ground and fertilizing our souls to bear good fruit. Uh, he's rescued us from the world and from the basic selfishness of having to live for ourselves, having to worship um, sinful things, like a, dis a disorder in our sense of worship. Um, I can't tell you the state of your souls, but I can tell you this much, that you're not, an, you're not a slave to sin. One, uh, objectively because you're baptized, but there's proof in the fact that you came here to worship God, that you are wasting what otherwise could have been something else. I don't know, eating ice cream or sleeping or watching a movie. I don't know what you're into. Um, but you're here. You're here because you're offering a gift of love, and you want to tell God, I love you. You want to offer Jesus to the Father. Give him the gift that he wants most of all, an act of love. That's beautiful. You got good fruit. Um, that's the best fruit, in fact. Uh, and I imagine that God has, is working lots and lots of similar fruits in your life. Jesus says, wake up. And he wants us to wake up to, to two things. One is the sin, and one is the providence of Jesus, interceding for us, fighting for us, protecting us in our sin. And we heard in the first, uh, in the first reading, there's, in, in the second, there's a reminder of salvation history, that in the Old Testament, God gave us this, this sort of schema, this story that invites us to understand our relationship with God, um, through the experience of our fathers, that at one point they were in Egypt and they were slaves, and God called them out of Egypt, set them free, did miracles, parted the waves, and brought them into the desert away from their slavery. Um, we're meant to understand, uh, we're meant to see ourselves there at some point, or at least potentially. That we could be slaves in Egypt. And now, the story tells it as if these people were upset about the fact that they were slaves. But you don't really, if you, if you look closely, you'll notice that they don't, they don't really care. Back in, the, back in that time, slavery was a very common thing. Um, your dignity didn't immediately depend on whether or not you were uh, or depending on which kind of class you served in. Um, there's this old principle that Plato talks about in the Republic. Do you read Plato? Republic. He says, uh, if you want to keep people content, you give them bread and circus. That's what the ruler should do. Give them bread and circus. That's all that people need. And then they won't revolt. They won't ask for anything. Bread and circus. And in Egypt, they have their bread and circus. They have leeks, they have meats, they, uh, they have fun, there's music, there's celebrations, there's old tradition, there's cool like headdresses for pharaohs and stuff. Uh, they, they only start to complain, and it's only a problem when they have to work way too hard, when the pharaoh starts pressing them and taking away their resources so they have to work much harder. And they realize they are not their own master that they belong to another master, and the, their master is a tyrant. There's something there about, about sin and waking up. 
um, that God provokes. But God says, I will set you free from this, and he rescues them from this image. Slavery becomes, for the Christians, an image of sin. Um, That ultimately, it's that selfishness that is manifest in these various ways that we have to serve the wrong things um, that God sets us free from. It's, it's, It's something of misdirected worship. Do you know that word? That word comes from, um, it has roots in uh, like a combination of English words, worth and ship. Huh? It's the things that are, wor- uh, that are uh, worth our time, that are valuable to us. What do we spend ourselves on? Uh, that's worship. What are you attached to? And um, we're not always conscious of that, no? You can ask yourself that, you know, in that, with that definition. What do I worship? It's not just like, what do I bow down to and chant things, you know? Um, it's what is worth my time? What is worth my life? What do I put my life into? And God wants the people to be free to worship God. And all they know is that they're, they're not free. And he leads them out into the desert. He sets them free. And they celebrate. They're very excited when they're set free. And you and I have been set free. I think you have to recognize this as a Christian. When Jesus tells us, wake up, open your eyes, see what God has done for you, and see who you are. Part of that is to recognize that you have been saved. Um, I don't know that the people... I think the people recognize that, but it's very helpful for us to look back and say, what could my life have been? What was my life look like with total selfishness? And um, we can't see that very clearly, you know? Sometimes God helps us to to open our eyes. Uh, Think of the sins that you like, and think of becoming an absolute slave to those sins. Think of the loneliness of driving away all of your friends for the sake of something really silly, um, your sin. You know, driving away the people you love, all of your loves, no longer loving anyone else but yourself. Uh, That's a real real possibility for human beings, but not for you, not for me, because we've been rescued from that. We've been set free, and the, the, the waters that parted and that we have walked through have shut off this, ba- this border, this boundary that you can't go back to. But we find ourselves in the desert now with a destination that is the promised land, the land of milk and honey, this beautiful place that was promised to us. Uh, for the Christians, we understand these, these images to be symbolic for heaven. And now we find ourselves on earth. Set free, but also in a, in a situation that's not quite complete. If you expect to be in heaven now, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Oh. The desert is a place where God refines people and makes them humble. That is, makes them aware of reality. Wakes them up to the reality of their lives. Uh, but it's a difficult place. And the people in the desert, where the Israelites complained and complained, they grumbled. 
They spent most of their time grumbling. Um, God provided for them bread, and it was good, and then it was only bread all the time, and it was not enough. Um, that makes sense to me. I don't think I'd want that. <laughs> God gives them some meat. He gives them birds that fall from the sky and are there for them to eat. But then it's only bread and quail all the time. Uh, this is 40 years. That's a long time. This isn't like 40 days. I get sick of not eating meat by the end of Friday. <laughs> 40 years in the desert. He, they, they get thirsty and they grumble. It's like, of course, that's okay, right? It makes sense. They're suffering. Um, but they're testing God. They don't trust God. Can you provide for us? Will you provide for us? Why are we following you? Why are we following you? Where are we following you? Forty years. That's a long time. And so they start to talk about, no, we want the leeks in, the, in Egypt. Give us the onion soup. That was fun. Give us the bread and circus. We don't have that anymore. Now we're wandering around the desert following a cloud and with this kind of promise that we would, end, we would reach the, the promised land. It's been 25 years, you know? Are our children going to see the promised land? I think we have to wake up to the fact that we live in the desert. That we, that Lent helps us to, to wake up to the fact that we live in the desert. And that the desert could be a place of in, profound encounter with God the way that Moses encounters God. That, the way that Moses delights in God. He wonders at the burning bush. He listens to the voice of God. He's edified by all of these things. He sees the provision of God for the people. That you've set them free and that you're leading them in the right direction. And he knows that God is providing for them even now in the desert. Give us this day our daily bread. That's enough. It is enough. It's, and, and it's the generosity of a good God who is providing for them. And Moses, because he's so close to God, he can be patient and he, he can intercede for the other people. And I think this is where God is leading us, to be able to recognize God, to see God, to hear God in very little moments. We hear about maybe five different encounters with God that Moses has in 40 years. Um, but they're encounters that sustain him, that build his trust, that he must have gone back to constantly and said, Lord, I trust in you. I know you're there. I remember you. And he doesn't let go of these things. He savors them. He guards them. And that's what we're called to do in the desert. One, to recognize that we can't change the circumstances of our lives, but we got to trust that God is bringing us to good places. And in the meantime, it doesn't help us to grumble. It doesn't help the people around us when we grumble. You know? It's hard not to, but to look around and say, something's wrong. I, it's, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's me, it's, I, it's the world. Um, that doesn't help. We have to pray during this time of Lent when we're starting to see clearly, Lord, help me not to grumble. That doesn't mean change everything. Well, you could ask for that, but it probably won't happen right away. Uh, you're not at the promised land. You might be in the desert for a while. But God is there. 
Lord, help me not to grumble. Lord, help me to see your face and hear your voice, to live with you. And then there's this real strange piece that I like about ancestry in this story. That is, God says, I am the God of your fathers. Moses says, who are you? And, and God says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses says, that's not enough. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promised that we would be free, that we would be living in our own land, and that we would serve no other master. And here we are. You're not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God would have protected us, would have rescued us, would have guarded us. Um, give me your name. And God says, I am. And that, that, that's the old tricky Yahweh. He eludes the question. I'm much bigger than you, you can imagine, little Moses. And then after he reveals this name, I am bigger, he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is my name forever. There's something powerful there um, that teaches Moses humility. You're not going to get an answer. You're not going to understand everything. But I have worked for you and for your people for a long time. I love you. And he also tells him, I am the God who will visit uh, good things on those who love me for a thousand generations. Well, um, imagine that. I don't know. We can't really imagine the future very well, but there are people who loved God in your past, in your lineage, whose uh, blessing, the blessing for which, the reward for which, is blessing you now. There are, the, your fidelity to God now is, will be blessing your children for a thousand generations. That's our God. Um, it's powerful. And I think it leads us to one more thing that I want to point out. There's a lot in the desert, but uh, a prayer not to grumble a prayer to uh, asking the Lord to help us, to, or to provide for us and to meet us in the desert. And then there's something about, Lord, give me the humility to be very grateful for what I have been given, um, particularly with respect to parents. That somehow this faith has been, been set up, been given to us, even if your parents aren't religious. Most of us probably had parents who were somewhat religious and had us baptized. Um, they're, they're people who are not perfect. And so when we think of their God, the God of our fathers, the God of our parents, um, ad most adults say, I don't want that God. I want my God. And there's something in the human experience that, that kind of requires that. You do have to you do have to, to get to know God yourself. Um, there's an inadequacy of the way that we can communicate God to one another, to our children, from our parents. Sometimes that God is too harsh. Sometimes that God is controlling. Sometimes that God is perceived as being aloof, very far away. Sometimes that God is perceived um, through our, watching our parents and their religion uh, as unimportant, you know, something to ignore, something to be bored by. There's an inadequacy, but 
What's more important is that their little attempts to love their God is what gave you faith, what passed it on to you. And I think there's, a, there's an experience that God is forming in the people in the desert of deep gratitude for not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the, the faith, the inadequate, the imperfect faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that kept that God close to their hearts and close to them. So I wanted, us, I wanted to finish by inviting you to thank God for what big or little faith your parents had, um, that your grandparents had, your ancestors had, that has been passed to you. It's a great gift. It's a beautiful thing. Um, it's never perfect. Hopefully God perfects it. Your vision of him in this life. Um, but gratitude is what he asks for now. Well, let us ask the Lord to keep us from all grumbling and to meet us in this time.